Well, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, we're going to continue our journey. Uh, we're going to finish up the book of both books of Thessal- Thessalonians. We're in Thessalonians, uh, the second Thessalonians chapter one tonight. So if you'll meet me in that place, we will begin now. Second Thessalonians is written to the church of Thessalonica just a few months, probably less than a year, from 1 Thessalonians. And the, the issue, what's going on with it, what's happening, is that the church is faced at a rather unique point of persecution. Here's what's happened. Thessalonica, guys, the first place Gentile Christians were being killed by Gentiles. Prior to that, it was Jews persecuting what was thought of by Rome as a, as a sect of Judaism. But no more. Now, the, the, the church has faced a persecution like this. Listen, in Thessalonica, it's where they started putting up this big statue of Caesar and telling everyone to take a pinch of incense and bow before Caesar proclaiming Caesar to be God. Christians wouldn't do it. So they were marked as those who were in opposition to Rome. Remember I told you as we look through the scriptures, we want to have an eye that sees pattern. That story ought to remind you of something. The reality of history, the Bible tells us, will take place again. When one who will come on the scene, Jesus said, I've come in my father's name and you did not receive me. Another will come how? In his own name. In him you will receive. Daniel spoke to us about the the Antichrist. John spoke to us about the spirit of Antichrist. That ultimately there is a being coming on on the planet in power in this place. And when he comes to this place, what he's going to do is set up a statue and require worship. Just like Caesar did. And what's going to take place? Any believers, tribulation saints, anyone who has their faith in Jesus Christ, at that point, what are they going to do? They're not going to bow. They will die. Every single one seems like as we read scripture it seems like there's going to be a time when all faith is is wiped out jesus said in luke chapter 18 verse 8 that he's going to come back and he is going to take vengeance on all those who have slaughtered his kids And in verse 8 he says, And when I come, will I find faith on the earth? Folks, the structure of that Greek sentence requires a no answer. The way that that's put together in the Greek says that it won't. So there are folks who believe that the persecution of the Antichrist will wipe out those of faith. Now I'm not talking about Israel. They're they're separated. We'll... We'd see if we were doing a study in Revelation, we could see that God has a plan for the nation of Israel that's separate and distinct from his plan for the church. However, when we take a look at what's going on here, he's, he's looking at this persecution, this, this event that takes place, 
And that has begun in Thessalonica. And because it's begun in Thessalonica, there were certain people who began to spread a letter. And in that letter, that letter declared there to the church of Thessalonica, hey, you guys missed the rapture, you're in the tribulation, and this is all you have to hope for. And so the church at Thessalonica began to struggle with where their hope is, what their hope is, in whom they place their trust. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians to deal with this issue. And reality is he's going to get to it in chapter 2. We, we are not going to get that far tonight, but we'll lay the groundwork for it. It begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul and Silvanus. Silvanus is the same as Silas. And Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, listen guys, Paul's instruction is to the church. We are always going to, to fall into error if we think that the church was placed here to instruct us. The church is placed here to receive instruction, not to provide instruction. What's happening to the church of Thessalonians? They're looking at the word of God penned by the, the pen of Paul. For all scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? All scripture laid out for us. It is profitable for correction, for reproof, for, for instruction in righteousness. This is given to us that we would take of the word of God and be instructed not that we would be designing some... Every time you look at church history, spend some time studying church history, look what happens when the church starts making rules. It's not very long before they're burning their own at the stake. Do you know that one time the church burned at the stake those people who would make the Bible available to anyone? They burned them. Why? Because the church is not supposed to institute its ideals. What's the church supposed to do? Receive instruction from the Word. That's the purpose. What is the church? The word in Greek is ecclesia. It means called out ones. Those who are called. It's not the building. It's not the place. It is a body of people, believers that come together. And when we come together, what are we supposed to do? Receive instruction. Folks, it's no different for you as it is for me. The, the, the message that the Lord brings in, in any Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, it's to me too. First, He deals with me. I sit down and all I'm going to do is share the, the devotion, the Word that God gave me to me in study. Now I'm just going to share that, what the Spirit has, has laid on my heart. That's what we want to receive as a church and look what it says about them. Where are they in? They're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I will, I will harp on this forever. Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him, speaking of Christ, 169 times. How many times does he have to use it before we recognize that that's of primary importance in our relationship with the Lord? We must be in, if we're not in Christ, we have nothing. And how are we in Christ? We're in Christ when we put our faith and trust in Him. I stand before Almighty God covered in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, 
The Bible says, I am a just man made perfect. You spend very much time with me, you will discover there's not very much perfect about me. If you doubt that, ask Kathy. She can point all the flaws out. (laughs) But in Christ, in Christ, we're just men and women made perfect. We're complete in him. Paul writes in Colossians that we are complete. We're not empty. We're not missing. We're not wandering about what's this all about. We're complete in him. So the primary importance for the church at Thessalonica is not so much their eschatology. Well, we'll get into that. It's what? Being found in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus tonight? Because if you're not in Christ, he's ready at any moment to say, He called. The call has gone out. Whosoever will may come. Receive. Give your life to Him. And you begin your journey. Your journey, your race, your walk toward Christ that is fulfilled on the day we see Him face to face. And that's our hope. That day when we see Him Face to face. Well, look what he says, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, Paul's always going to start this way. Grace and peace. And it's a basic, fundamental point that you will not ever experience peace if you don't understand grace. You cannot know the peace of God if you don't know the grace of God. Otherwise, you're going to be condemning yourself for those acts and places in your life you failed. That's not ever going to change. I mean, there will be other times where we'll, we'll attain the greater and greater victories. But folks, the bottom line is, from now till eternity, we're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're going we're to blow it. But what? But we're saved by grace. It wasn't anything I did that brought salvation to me other than receiving the gift that Jesus extended to me. Jesus extends a gift of salvation. I receive it. By grace I have been saved. Through faith. Not of works. Lest anyone would boast how great they are by what they've done. We're saved by grace. And when I understand the grace of God, I have peace. Why? I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded. He keeps me to that day. That's the peace of God. The peace of God that passes All understanding. How does it pass all understanding? How does it enable us to to move forward and be all that God wants us to be? Guys, because we understand. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on Him. Jesus Christ will not save anyone that He cannot keep. If you're saved, He'll keep you. Jesus said, in His hands, He holds All whom the Father has given him. And no one can snatch you out. And the Father who is mightier than all, what does Jesus say? He holds you in his hands. No one will snatch you out of the Father's hands. There's nothing that you're going to do. Some accidental sin, some mistake, some some issue that's going to enter into your life that caused you to trip and God not be able to save you. The Lord will save those who are calling on His name. And it will be 
by grace, through faith. And we will experience that peace that God has for us. And verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you. Now that is a unique phrase. We are bound means that he is under obligation to God to thank God for those people. If Paul was under obligation to thank God for those people, how are we? Aren't we under obligation to thank the Lord for the brothers and sisters he places in our life? Are we seeking the Lord? Are we coming to the Lord with that attitude of thanksgiving like we talked last Wednesday night? Are we coming to the Lord with that attitude? Because that attitude of gratitude changes everything else in our life. If we're willing to be thankful. And so he says, hey, I'm bound to thank God always for you, brethren. As it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Hey, that phrase, grows exceedingly, means a very vigorous growth. Their faith was growing by leaps and bounds. Folks, how does our faith grow? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. That's it. God's word lays it out. If I want my faith to grow, I've got to be pouring the word of God into my life. I've got to take every opportunity. Hey, I'm thankful for everyone who's here tonight because you're taking the opportunity to grow your faith. The church at Thessalonica was just like that. They wanted their faith to grow, so they were studying the word. They were studying the scriptures. They were taking Paul's letters and reading them before the congregation. They were growing and learning. And Paul says, man, I'm so thankful. Now, he just wrote to them and said how thankful he was for their work of faith before, remember? This time he's saying it again. Your faith grows exceedingly. The word of God moving in their lives. And the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Hey, they were loved. What did Jesus say? They will know you are my disciples. How? Yeah, it sure ain't going to be by your doctrine or your theology How well you sing or play or whatever you do. They will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. How you love one another. But folks, when we look at this verse and we consider what the Lord brought to us in 1 Thessalonians, we should see something is missing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Now abide these three. What were they? Faith, hope, love. Here we have two. Faith and love. What happened to hope? If you turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. This is what Paul writes. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, And of the Father. He commended them for their hope in the first letter. But in the second letter, he doesn't talk to them yet about their hope. Why? Because that is where confusion has come. Now, what most Bible scholars believe took place is that someone forged a letter from Paul, brought it into Thessalonica as though it was from him, and began to express to the church of Thessalonica, who was undergoing intense persecution from Rome, who was the first place Gentile believers were killed by Gentiles, where they were being crucified, thrown to the lions. I mean, they were under intense persecution. This letter came and said, 
you guys are in the great tribulation period right now. You're in that period of time. And they were confused. They were confused. If that's true, there's, there's a lot of things that Paul had taught them that, that wasn't necessarily making sense. And they didn't understand what was happening. And so they, their hope was, in, in a sense, misplaced. They're confused. What's going on? Are we in the tribulation period? What's going to happen to me? Are we all just going to die? Is that how it works? Is that what the Lord is doing? And so Paul is going to focus on that as we get into chapter 2. He's going to tell them not to be shaken. As though by some word or some letter. But to stay rooted in their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And here he lays that, that concept out. As he lays out for us the blessing that is the church He leaves out hope. And like I said, we're going to build on that in just a moment. So that we ourselves boast of you. Hey, don't lose sight that Paul was proud of the church of Thessalonica. Paul was proud of what they were doing. Paul was proud of what they were accomplishing. Paul was excited about their faith and their love. And and he's going to straighten out the, the issues that are going on within the body about whether or not they're actually in the tribulation period right now. And so as he's considering all of those things, man, he is excited. Guys, he was only there four weeks. One month. That's it. One month, and the church of Thessalonica was blowing up. Man, they were growing. And what happens every time the church faces persecution? It grows. What happens in churches across the United States when hard times come? What about the Sunday after 9-11? You think there's anybody extra in church? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. When we, were, when we were in Yucca Valley, when we had a big earthquake, big old earthquake came through, all of a sudden, man, that next Sunday, boom, we're busting at the seams. Because the Lord kind of is shaking things up. I don't know, people... When times get hard or they get nervous or afraid, where do they go? They come to church. But when times are good, well, that's a different story altogether, right? I'm reminded the psalmist, the psalmist or his son, I don't remember which now, that said to the Lord, hey, God, give me just what I need for my daily bread. Don't give me too little so that I steal and profane your name. And don't give me too much so that I forget you. Just give me my daily bread. Isn't that what we need? We need just what God has for us that day. To be content in all, in all things. To be content. Contentment with godliness. Well, this is great gain. Well, he says, We ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for what? Your patience and faith in all your persecution and tribulations that you endure. That word patience, folks, is a word hupomone. It doesn't mean to be delivered from. It means to be steadfast and bear up under. That patience came from what? Tribulation. What is it that tribulation produces? The Bible tells us tribulation produces patience. Patience, character, character, hope. 
And hope does not disappoint, for the love of God is poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. Listen, that is what is accomplished in it. So the first thing Paul wants them to recognize is, every time you face persecution or tribulation, it's not bad. There are good things that are accomplished in it. And Paul's bragging about the Thessalonians to all the other churches he goes to. Hey, these guys are doing good. Follow their example. These guys are remaining patient. They're staying steadfast. Why? Because when I read the seven letters to the seven churches, I see two things. I see the church of Smyrna facing incredible times of persecution and tribulation. And the Lord tells them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God told Smyrna he wasn't going to get them out. He tells Smyrna they're going to go through hard times. He tells them it won't be permanent, but that he's not going to save them from that, that time. Then we look at the church of Philadelphia, and the church of Philadelphia, what does the Lord say? Hey. Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape those things which are to come upon the whole earth. Well, for the church of Philadelphia, the Lord is going to deliver them from their persecution. And how do we know the difference? How do we know whether we're one or the other? We don't. We pray for that patience that God gives us that we might endure. For the writer of Hebrews says, you have need of endurance. You got need of endurance. It's, it's not a sprint, folks. We're in this for a long haul. And whatever God wills to do in our lives is for two things, our good and His glory. Every single time. So if the Lord delivers you, it was for your good and His glory. If He doesn't deliver you, it's for your good and His glory. It doesn't change. For we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Hey, it's all going to come together. We trust Him. They had incredible patience and faith in their persecution and tribulation that they endured which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. What is he saying? Didn't Jesus say, a servant is not greater than his master? So if the world hates me, what's it going to do to you? Hate us too. The, the worry is, if we are never under persecution or ever in any kind of tribulation, what does that say? I don't know. I, I get nervous about that. Because Jesus said that if you're like me, they'll treat you like they treated me. There will, what, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will suffer persecution. That, by the way, is emphatic promise. So there is going to be those things that come into our life. That's not a sign that God's punishing or that God's hurting or that God's angry. It just means we're like Christ. That's what he's saying right here. Hey, this is saying that you're, you're being counted worthy to suffer like Christ did. You are being an example of Jesus Christ and you're going through the same things he did. It's okay. 
That's okay. But folks, I want you to see something. When we look at these sections, and if we had the time to really break down an exegete into the Greek, you would discover that every time tribulation or persecution is talked about, it is tribulation or persecution from the world, from man to man. Except in the next couple of verses, and you'll see that with me. But prior to that, this is what he's talking about. That persecution we endure in life. The tribulation of this world. We're going to face that. We're going to experience that. We're going to go through those things. It's important that we realize that. But in verse 6 he says, Now since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And what's he saying? The Lord lays out for us in the scripture, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. There is a day of the restitution of all things. There is a time in which the wrath of God will be poured out on what the Bible calls earth dwellers. The earth dwellers, those who are earthy, those who are carnal of the world, of the earth, not of God. He's pouring out his vengeance. He's pouring out his wrath upon that Christ-rejecting world. And as God is pouring out that wrath, he says, and to give you who are troubled, what? Rest with us. Where's our rest? You know, for the nation of Israel, the rest was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the rest. What's the rest for the church? The Bible says Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. To give us rest, rest with us. Rest from your troubles. Do you know that there is coming a day, folks, and I don't care, we could, we could all sit around and argue what points of view we come from, from the rapture. The one thing I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, the rapture will come. The Bible tells 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that there is a rapture. Well, it doesn't use the word rapture. It uses the word harpazo. There will be the snatching away. So if you want to call it the great snatched away, that's fine. You don't want to call it where we get rapture from, folks? Simple. Rapture comes from the Latin word for harpazo, rapturo. The Latin initially translated over, uh, folks held on to that and called it the rapture. What is the point? The point is that God's going to call his church home. That there's a time, a coming time, when we will be with Christ. And from that moment, guys, from that moment when we are with Christ, what happens? We'll never be away from him again. He'll call us home, and we go home. He calls us to him, and we go to him. Here's the question that, 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 that I ask. And as, as I've answered this question for myself, the point of view that I come from, from is a, a pre-trib rapture. I believe that we're not appointed under wrath. And so that we will escape that time which is to come. The, the believers are going to escape. But listen, the point of all that is simply this. What does it, your belief, your eschatology your focus on the rapture what does it do for you does it encourage you every day 
to be looking for Jesus Christ, to be living for him for all your worth. If it does, right on. It's great. Hey, folks, here's the good news. Whatever point of view you come from, from the rapture, it doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. It's not about that stuff. We should be able to fellowship together whatever point of view we come from. Only be fully convinced in your own mind. I just know 1 John 3 tells me that everyone who has this hope, and this hope for me is looking for Jesus Christ every day. I want to see him today. I want him to come back, say, hey, we're out of here. I look forward to that. Why do I want to see that? Because I want to escape hard times? No. Why, why would I want to escape hard times? Hard times cause us to grow. I don't want to escape difficulties. I, don't want, I want to go to him because the most important thing in my life is to be able to be with my Savior. And I can't be with him right now. Most important thing for me is to be in his presence. The most important thing for me is to hear him call and go home. That's it. Until that time... Scripture calls me to occupy till he comes, to do business till he comes, to bring people to Jesus. Isn't that what the disciples did? Bring people to Jesus. I can't solve your problems, but I know who can. I can't always make everything right, but I know who can. I know I might not have the answer, but I know who does. Bringing people to Jesus. Hey, that's our hope. That's the hope. That's, for me, that's the rest To give you who are troubled, rest with us. My rest is in Christ Jesus. And until he calls me home, I will look for it with my whole heart. And if it goes my whole life, it goes my whole life. And if he comes tomorrow, woohoo! There's no losers there, is there? Hey, we, we want to be in his presence. We want to be with him. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now in verse 8, he's talking about again this this, uh, repayment of tribulation he spoke of in verse 6. Look, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's talking about, folks. This This is the definition, the biblical definition of vengeance. The administration of unwavering justice. The administration of unwavering justice. What an incredible concept, isn't that? Man, I don't want to be in that line. Unwavering justice. So that's what the Lord will bring. Unwavering justice is this vengeance that will come. And whenever he talks about the flame of fire and we start to think about the the, the, the fires, the hellfire, the, the lake of fire for the, created for the devil and his angels, I will always think of Gehenna. Gehenna, it's, the, it's, it's really the Valley of Hinnom. When you're in Israel, you've heard of the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, as it circles around the city of, of Jerusalem, it becomes the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. God called that place hell. Why? Because it was in that valley that the children of Israel would go down and worship Molech. It was in that valley 
that they would sacrifice their children to a false god. And the fires of Molech were always burning. It became the garbage dump of the city. All the trash and filth and and evil doings were all poured into the valley of Hinnom. So when Jesus came and folks wanted him to give a description of hell, he called it Gehenna. It's like the valley of Hinnom where my people offered their children as burnt offerings unto a false god. Things that I never expected or thought. God said, didn't even ever enter into my mind that they should sacrifice their children to me. And here they sacrifice them to Molech so that Molech would give them good crops. So whenever I see flaming fires in my mind's eye, I just picture this valley full of these fires with this little god Molech in them with the children burning in the fire. And God said, that's hell. That's hell. And the Lord, folks, will return for all of that to administrate unwavering justice. If we're not found in Christ, you will fall. Period. None of us can stand before unwavering justice. These, he makes a distinction now, verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Hey folks, that's everlasting and eternal. Here's the crazy thing. If we were to study the book of Revelation, we break out the book of Revelation, and we know that chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation speak to us about that last 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period, the period of tribulation. You know what happens in chapter 19? The false prophet, the Antichrist, are cast alive into the lake of fire. In chapter 20, a thousand years pass. We see the thousand-year reign of Christ. At the end of the thousand-year reign, when the devil and all those who follow him are cast into the lake of fire, guess who's still there? The Antichrist and the false prophet. A thousand years later, Still in existence. They don't cease to exist. It's eternal existence in the separation of God. What's the big deal about that? Well, the folks, the Bible teaches us every good and perfect gift comes from who? God. So the absence of God is also the absence of every good thing. Light. Warmth. Every good, anything good you can imagine, it's not there. It's not going to be in that place. In verse 10, he says, Now when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. What's he saying? Listen, when the Lord returns, uh, I believe he's talking about the return of the Lord in Revelation chapter 19, when the Lord returns with his saints. He returns with the bride of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. He, and what's he saying? That great multitude is built up of those who believed. What? Who believed their testimony. What's their testimony? The gospel. What's the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15. 
If you ever wanted a real nice synopsis of the gospel, all you have to do is ask. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul would write to us these words. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached, and which you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, though some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that they went about from place to place and taught. That's the gospel he's talking about here. That you believed that you believed our testimony. In verse 11, Therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. We pray always that you would be found worthy. Worthy, the word worthy means of equal weight too. That we would be of equal weight to the calling with which we have been called. Paul says, I always pray, first, that you would be worthy of your calling, and secondly, that you would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Worthy of the calling that you would also fulfill God's will. He prayed that you be worthy of the calling and that you would fulfill God's will for your life. And then he talks about their work of faith. Everybody always trips up over this work of faith. Guys, this is the reality. Faith has working clothes on. If your faith don't have working clothes on, it's not faith. It's words. And the Bible says the demons believe and tremble, but they're not saved. Faith has working clothes on. It is a natural production of faith, the works that will flow through a person's life. If you say you have faith but have not works, there's no fruit. Why is there no fruit? Why is there not the fruit of faith in your life? Why isn't that growing? Why isn't that established? James would lay out for us, hey, you show me your, your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith, what? With my works. Because it's evident. It'll be evident to all. So we want to pray for one another that we'll be worthy of the calling with which we've been called, and that we'll fulfill God's word, and that there will be a work of faith with power. Who brings that power for the work of faith? Who is the author and the finisher of your faith? Jesus. It's Him. It's all Him in our surrendering to Him. In verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ 
may be glorified in you. You know what that's saying? Do you know what the name indicated at the time when the Bible was written? That someone's name indicated all of their characteristics. The characteristics of a person was all in their name. The character, that the character of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. That you would have the character of God in your life. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, God wants to move in us. God wants us to grow. God wants us to learn. God wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to experience all of these things that he has for us. And as we seek him, as we seek his, his direction, his touch, his, his guidance, he, he wants us to have hope. To have our hope in Christ. That our hope is, when we see his face, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. That we would trust in the promises that God gives. That we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That we will spend eternity with him. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go... To prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you unto myself that where I am, what? There you will be also. We're going to be with him forever from that moment forward. You remember that I shared with you that we always want to have that mindset, that ideal of pattern. That pattern shows us prophecy. Do a study on your own of the Jewish wedding. Take a look at it. But you see, there would be a time of betrothal where the, the, the bride and the groom would be brought together and they would make a promise to one another. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. That's Jackie paraphrase. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. And then they would share together in the last meal they had together until they were brought together as husband and wife in the breaking of bread and in wine, the implements of communion. Then the man would say to his bride, I will not touch the fruit of this vine again until I drink it with you as my wife. Does any of that sound familiar? Then he would go to his father's house. And when he went to his father's house, he would be in his father's house preparing a place for his bride. He would build an addition, a room for her. And he doesn't even know when he's going to go get her. You know who knows? The father. The father would tell his son, all right, son, great job, you're ready, go get her. And then he'd go. Tradition was that he would come at midnight, late at night. And they try to sneak up, but you can't keep something that good under a hat. So they had a difficult time sneaking up. There would be all these rumors, he's coming for her tonight, he's coming for her tonight. And then he would come as he got down below her father's house. She was to be ready. Ready to go at any moment. And then the, the bridegroom, he would, he would come in and the, the best man, he would sound the trumpet. And the, the shofar would blast and the, and the bride and the bridesmaids and the wedding party, they would all rush out and meet him in the street. 
And they would go to their father's house, the place that was prepared for them, for a seven-day feast. For seven days, the bride would be sequestered. And the bridegroom would be the only one to see her. And at the end of seven days, the bride and the bridegroom would be presented together. Do a careful study through the Scriptures. See if you don't see that picture somewhere else as we look at the truth of what God's Word teaches. The reality that Jesus loves His bride and He's coming for her. Amen? We're going to go ahead and do a, our time of extended worship. And as we do that time of extended worship, and like we did a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to ask my wife to come up. If there's anybody here tonight as we worship that, that wants to come up and pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to, to be filled, to overflowing, has any questions about that, she'll be up front to talk with you. For the rest of us, we just want to worship and allow the Spirit to move. If God uh, gives you a word for a brother or sister here, just go over and put your arm around them and tell them. If you want to pray for someone, feel free uh, to allow the Spirit to minister in that way. We want to keep the focus of Jesus Christ. We don't want the focus to be on us, so we're going to hopefully just uh, allow God to move in us and through us in that way, and we'll glorify Him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you right now, Lord Jesus, we do pray, God, that you would, Father, help us to have uh, just that desire that we would not only have our faith grow and love be established in our lives, but Father, that we would also put our hope in you, we put our trust in you, that God, you would, one day, you're going to carry us home. One day you're going to call us. And it might be today, it might be tomorrow. God, we just want to live our life every day so that when you come, when you call, we are found doing what you call us to do. We are found fulfilling that plan that you have in our life. God, we want to glorify you in in everything that we do. So God, allow that to be that which, which enables us, encourages us to be pure to purify us even as we are pure, that we desire to not wait till tomorrow to do the things God is calling us to do today. Father, help us be and do and accomplish all those things, Father. Lord God, we want to glorify you in it. If it's not bringing glory to you, then it's something that we ought to place outside of our life, Lord. Father, we want to surrender ourselves, Lord Jesus, to that empowering of your spirit. We want to ask, Lord God, that you would move in a mighty way in this place. We want to pray, God, that we bring honor to you. So we lift this evening to you. In Jesus' name. In my prayer in the desert, when 
And all that's within me feels dry This in my prayer in my hunger and need God is a God who provides This is my prayer in the fire so trial or pain Berries of faith prove the more worth than gold Refine me, Lord, through the flame I will bring praise I will bring praise No weapon formed against me shall remain I will rejoice, I will declare, God is my victory and He is here. This is my prayer in the battle, and triumph is still on its way. I am a conqueror, go where with Christ So firm on His promise I'll stand I will bring praise, I will bring praise No weapon formed against me shall remain I will rejoice, I will declare God is my victory and He is here All of my life, in every season, you are still God, and I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship. In all my life, in every season, you are still God. I have a reason to sing I have a reason to worship I will bring praise I will bring praise No weapon formed against me shall remain I will rejoice I will declare God is my victory and He is here I will bring praise, I will bring praise No weapon formed against me shall remain I will rejoice, I will declare God is my victory and He is here This is my prayer in the harvest In favor and providence flow I know I'm filled to be emptied again The seed I receive I will sow